0: And welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric. On behalf of everyone here at the dojo, thank you so much for tapping in. I was on a cruise a few months ago before this most recent massive uptick of COVID, and something I noticed pretty immediately upon going on to the boat was how old the crowd was. Not too surprising, my grandparents booked the cruise and picked a ship that is certainly not geared towards younger folks, but it was still striking how old and seemingly wealthy a lot of the clientele was. I decided to take the opportunity to attend some seminars on art, since a lot of them taught about auctions, appraising, and evaluating, things that I've never really had the money to even think about doing. Well, okay, I still don't, but on this ship I could at least pretend, Right? One of these seminars on evaluating art was centered on the idea of collecting art. What should you look for? What is a collection? Why do people choose to collect art instead of something like toy cars or rocks? The reasons they gave were pretty well tailor-made for the audience in attendance. Art is a status symbol. It has the ability of making people go, ooh, when they see it on your wall. Or, as the presenter told us, you could put the art piece on an easel and constantly change your collection to make you look sophisticated, always in the know. And if your collection is dynamic, it means you are, as a person, too. Now, let's just put this out there. The presenter was also the chief auctioneer for the company doing the auction on the ship. He, of course, wanted to guide us towards thinking about buying new art to be dynamic people, but I think he touched on something in his definitely not, but actually definitely was, sale pitch. The idea that people enjoy collecting, that it's inherent in many of us, and that collecting can be a status symbol for us and part of our identity, I think it was spot on. To drive home the point, the thing that most interested me was the idea that art in and of itself can be a hobby, but so can the collection of it. And so today, we wanted to explore this more. Today, we are going to talk about collecting, why we do it, how long people have done it, and when it becomes problem-solve. some. is the difference between collecting and hoarding? Why are some people content with a collection of 10 games, but others want something like 500? From theories that it is our way to cope with learning how to go to the bathroom, to present-day diagnoses of hoarding and compulsive buying disorders, the history and psychology of why we collect is a fascinating one. So assemble your favorite note-taking materials, compile your favorite food and drink combination, and gather together your friends, because class is in session. Hello, hello, welcome back to The Psychology of Games. I hope you had an absolutely spectacular summer vacation, played some great games. I know I did. In fact, I got to fill a giant hole in my heart, something that has been eating me inside for a while. Today, we are covering one of the most interesting, important topics to date, and that's saying a lot. It is important, a cornerstone of any good psychological syllabus. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby, I got to play Pokemon. RC is the only Pokemon game I hadn't yet played, and today we are going to talk about Pokemon. Who here has ever played Pokemon? Okay, that one's on me. If you're at home, about 99% of the room just raise their hands. That's on me. That was a bit of self-selection problem. This is a psychology of games class. At its core, Pokemon is fairly easy to explain. You enslave these creatures into these tiny balls and then have them attack each other until one of them faints. You keep doing this over and over until you beat everyone's Pokemon into submission and become champion. Right? Okay, maybe that's not it. But have you ever realized how many people in the Pokemon games mentions about the enslavement of Pokemon? I think someone at the Pokemon company is having moral quandaries, like, absolutely daily. But actually, to be a bit more accurate, if not reductionist... You collect Pokemon to collect badges, and you do that by training these collected Pokemon. Before you grinded in Elden Ring, there was the grinding of Pokemon, so you could collect every Pokemon, including the evolutions. The games and the show are about catching and collecting. I mean, the slogan for the show is literally, gotta catch them all. So what is it about this game that makes it the highest grossing media franchise of all time, at over 118 billion dollars? It's a question that psychologists, sociologists, economists, even business people trying to recreate it all have studied extensively. Because whether it's the video game, the card game, Pokemon Go, when a new version of it comes out, people young and old flock to it. It is immediately successful. You're allowed to think, well, Eric, it's because it's fun. It's an enjoyable game. And I would agree. But it also is an interesting step-off point to explore a topic that is often fundamental in gaming, if not something also fundamental in life, collecting. Today we are going to talk about Pokemon, yes, but more central to the point, we are going to talk about why we collect, the motivations behind it, what even is a collection, and because this is a psychology class, we also need to explore the dark side of it. When does it become a problem rather than a hobby? When does it become hoarding instead of collecting? First things first, let's cement what collecting even means. Collecting in terms of the hobby is the accumulation of items, which may differ widely in nature and scope. The thing to pay attention to in this first definition is the word scope. What I will hopefully drill into you today is that different hobbies have different ways of collecting. And that means that these different collections will have different motivations and different ways of expressing itself. Let me have you do an informal experiment that I did. I'll tell you what I found after I ask you some questions. Well, really, one. I'm going to pick a number. Uh, Let's go with five. I'm going to give you an item, and I want you to simply answer yes or no. If five of that object, in your opinion, makes up a collection. Simple, right? Okay, here we go. First one. Pairs of scissors. If someone has five pairs of scissors, is that a scissor collection? Next one, board games. How about t-shirts? If someone has five t-shirts, is that a collection? Two more. How about five works of art? And finally, how about five downloaded video games or mobile game apps? Something completely digital. I don't know why I said mobile there. Like a, is that British? I don't know. Okay, so what I did was I just walked up to random people around campus and did the exact same thing I just did with you gave them the same five objects, asked them, hey, if you have five of these, would you consider that a collection? Which is probably weird for them, but hey, thanks to them, we got this part of the lecture. How did you answer versus the ones I asked? Let me give you the responses from the informal study. There were two of these that, in quite opposite directions, got 100% of the vote one way or the other. T-shirts were universally seen as not a collection, but works of art were always considered a collection. Board games were slightly favoring collection, but digital games were heavily favored towards not a collection. And scissors were sharply in the direction of not a collection. (laughs) See what I did there? Sharp? (laughs) So I think these are quite interesting results, and we don't have time for me to go around and ask everyone how their answers compare to those I found. But I want you to keep it in your mind, because we are going to keep coming back to it. The point of this exercise, however, was to point to the importance, the heavy lifting that the word scope does here in the definition. Collection can differ wildly in nature and scope. And the beautiful thing about it is a collection is completely subjective. Remember, subjective is opinion, objective if not. If you have troubles remembering it, subjective is based on the subject's interpretation. The subject is saying something. The object belongs to something. It's just there. It has no opinion. It's an object. It can't speak. Anyway, collections are almost entirely the opinion of the holder. I can think if I have two books on my bookshelf that it's a collection. Or I can have 20 board games and say that I don't. And that can be based on societal factors. Like maybe you don't consider 10 DVDs a collection because people on the DVD subreddit have thousands, so you don't see yours as qualifying. Maybe it's based on ambition. Like two stamps from different countries are the start of your stamp collection. Or it can be the value to you that dictates whether it's a collection. Like if you got a signed t-shirt from your favorite band, and that is a collection of one. But now that we know what a collection is, an accumulation of things that we value that can differ wildly based on our own notions of a collection, whether that be in nature or scope, we need to figure out why we do it in the first place. Why do we go through all of the trouble to collect? Like I said before, this is not an uncommon line of inquiry, nor is it a new one. Sociologists, psychologists, market researchers, they have come up with a plethora of reasons why we may do it. We can start off with the realm of evolutionary psychology. If you go home and do research on collecting and the motivations behind it, you'll find many, and I mean so many, articles citing consumerism and modern-day technology as the start of collecting. This is just not true. Sure, maybe things like eBay accelerated it, made it easier. But people, humans, have been collecting for hundreds of thousands of years. Evolutionary psychologists posit that part of this reason might have been survival. At a very fundamental level, the more food you could collect the better your chances at survival. Makes sense. This also had the benefit of attracting mates, as it signaled the ability to provide for others. But here's the thing. While I think that it's partly true, I think it might have been the start of collecting. It's definitely not the whole case. It's one thing to collect something needed for survival, like food, water, shelter, warmth. But remember our informal study we did earlier? Nobody considered five t-shirts a collection. I admit that language changes and terms take on new meanings, but there also has to be some reason we collect unnecessary things like works of art. Hey, when I say unnecessary, I mean purely in the biological sense, not in the quality of life sense. Trust me, I'm not saying art is unnecessary. But the oldest collection we have in the world is unnecessary things. Crystals were found in the Kalahari region of Southern Africa that were clearly brought there because they did not naturally exist in that area. And archaeologists use this as a sign that humans have been collecting since this time. This time was 105,000 years ago, just a little bit before consumerism, just a little before eBay. Ultimately, they seemingly held no tangible benefit. So why did they go through such troubles to get them and carry them around? One idea is that the crystals were used for beauty. People might have held onto them because they believed they could help their bodies in some way. So they collected them for different bodily purposes. History has shown us that we as people have been fascinated with geological things somehow helping us by being either attached to us or on our person, from jewelry now to pirates wearing earrings because they thought it helped their vision. Hold on, pause. That is a fun bit of trivia. Pirates wore metallic earrings all the time because at the time it was thought that the properties and the metals helped better your vision, which when you're on the open waters possibly fighting would help. Anyways, getting back to the crystals, the main theory as to why people held onto these crystals is actually social. It is believed that they were used in rituals, possibly for religious purposes, but not sure, or in some kind of cultural practice. So, having these crystals became something to share, something to talk about, something that held a cultural value to them. And that is where we break off from looking at evolution and start thinking about the self, the person, the individual. Not us as a species, but individual reasons for collecting. Because not everyone was found with these crystals, not everyone is a huge collector. So what draws people to it? Let me just say this first. I get angry talking about Sigmund Freud. He is to psychologists, what Dr. Oz is to medical doctors. The one your parents can probably name and somehow has his license even though he promotes completely unfounded crap. <sighs> but sometimes he, as in Dr. Freud, not Dr. Oz, he asked poignant questions that we hadn't quite gotten to as a field of study. And one of those things was why individuals collect, sometimes unhealthily. So he interviewed patients, got to know their personal lives, their drives, and came up with his brilliant theory. It all had to do with when they were kids. It all had to do with poop. Did you have poop problems as a kid? Could you not control it like a pet bird or new puppy? You just kind of pooped everywhere? That trauma, that lack of control of your bowels is the reason you collect. Ha! I'll let you sit there and reflect on that for a moment, that epiphany you must be having. This theory makes me angry. Freud makes me angry. And the thing that makes me the angriest about this whole thing is that he was kind of right. Okay, he was like kind of the conspiracy theorist, kind of right, where he got like 10%, 20%, so therefore he cracked it. It has nothing to do with poop. Unless your collection is a poop collection in its case. But he actually got something. And that is that for many people, it can directly connect to childhood. And for many people, it is a perception of lack of control. But it isn't over your bowels. It's over your life. This is where we get to the main categories of collecting. There aren't textbook categories of this, but I separated them out into these because I think it's helpful to mentally organize as best we can. The first one, as I just mentioned, is a lack of control over one's life. This is where we see the midlife crises, collections, but also this has become more predominant in adults in their 30s and 40s as well. It's the fear of dying, the existential crisis. Many people collect because they fear that they will leave nothing behind, nothing of value. It could be as a legacy, it could be something sentimental, but whatever the case, it turns into a passion to build up something that gives them purpose. I'm not gonna go through the why for each motivation, but I think this one isn't especially interesting. If you think about it, objects can be controlled. Your life, well, your death, cannot. So people tend to make up for their perceived sense of uncontrollability with collecting things, having a sense of ownership of something, having control of something. So it starts in that way and can transform itself into having a sense of purpose to leave behind something to be remembered by. And remembrance brings us to our next category, which I'm gonna call connection to the past. This includes two huge motivations, but I like grouping them together. Nostalgia and history. Think about Pokemon for a second. I myself don't think I would have ever picked up a Pokemon game as an adult if I hadn't played it as a kid. But I played it as a kid. And I have fond memories of playing on my Game Boy just using the little bit of light from the street lamps as my parents drove. I remember the Pokemon I worked hard to catch, and now I collect all the games. And probably more directly interesting for our topic, I seek out the same Pokemon I loved as a kid. It brings me joy. It brings back good memories. And that's what a lot of nostalgia collections are. They are a collection of memories. Sure, the fact that I have a Chef Pikachu is very cute, but I don't have it just because it's cute. I have it because it solicits a memory. It's why so many parents make scrapbooks, which are but a collection of photos and concert tickets and whatever else they want. They allow us to connect with a past memory. But this category also includes a connection to a past we didn't experience, from our family or otherwise. The reason we know so much about Freud's questionable practices is that his daughter, Anna, hired people to help her collect his letters that he chose not to publicly show. She wanted to connect to, and probably what she thought, preserve his legacy. She didn't experience what her father did, but through her collections, she was able to connect with it. I think a lot of war memorabilia collectors, or like Anna, people who collect letters from famous people, or maybe old coins, they can also connect with the past through their collection. They might not have experienced anything similar to it in their own lives, but by researching the items, collecting them, preserving them, they can learn from and appreciate its history. We are going to go rapid fire through the next couple because I think they're pretty intuitive. One is investment. People collect things to make a profit, either by trading or by flipping them. Or they hold on to their collections and build it up so that either by waiting until they are rare or the collection to be complete, the collection is worth a lot more than they put in. People who do this for a living are considered professional collectors, and we group them in here mostly. Another is the intellectual gains acquired by collecting. It's hard for these not to overlap, and I think this one does a bit with the connection to history. But where connection is more of an emotional drive, this one is more of an academic one. I want to collect Japanese ancient texts so that I can learn about ancient Japan. I want to collect dinosaur bones because I'm a paleontologist, things like that. Expressing yourself is a really important motivator for a lot of people. The size of their collections, the types of things they pick out, those are expressions of their personality and style. This is really prominent in art collecting, where the art you have up on your walls is indicative of your taste. Think about it. I think we have all been art collectors before, whether it's your kids' pictures you put on the fridge, your favorite band's posters up on your bedroom walls. Those are showing of what's important to you your brand as a human, if you will. And this overlaps so much with another category, status symbol. Sometimes we collect to express ourselves, and sometimes we collect to express our status. We want status, and this changes based on hobby, right? If someone says, I have a library of over a thousand books, they are both expressing that they like books, well, hopefully, but they are also trying to convey that they are an intellectual, intellectual. Think about it. What is the immediate thought of the average person as someone who says that they have a thousand books in their home that they've read versus 1,000 games that they have that they've played? It's completely different, right? But to different people, those are different statuses. In the board game community, for many people, having something like 100 games means you are fully integrated into the hobby. There are things called shelfies in which people show off their collections. They gain status. Now, this brings up an interesting question. Can people have different motivations? Does it have to be just one? The answer is no. People rarely fit into one category for anything, and this is no exception. Exception. Wow, I can say that word. You can both collect to gain intellect, but also for profit. You could start by collecting for pure enjoyment, but once it reaches a certain level, you start collecting for status. Our goals change. As we get better at collecting, gain more skills, and a discipline, our motivations can change. And we see this development, this evolution in collectors' behavior, probably most prominently in games. It's easy to use video games, so let's. Let's go back to the original, important topic, Pokemon. The franchise that, I repeat, is the highest grossing media franchise of all time. Game designers have taken these lessons of collections, what drives people to continue on with them, build them, whatever, and use them to get people into playing their games for long stretches of time. Whether intentionally or not, games are actually one of the best things we can use to learn about psychological processes when it comes to collecting. The first thing we realize is that digital collections, especially in-game collections that affect gameplay in some way, is actually more used than physical collections. More than that, if digital games allow for the player to either A, use the rare item, or B, show it to people then people are more apt to go out and try to collect those things. But there are thresholds to this, because players often don't like when those collector's items change the game fundamentally. They don't want an OP Pokemon that kills everything in one shot. Players like items and Pokemon that allow them to share their rarity with others, use it while playing the game, but they still want to play the same game everyone else is playing. Pokemon has done this masterfully throughout its history. Think about Shiny Pokemon. A variant in which, very rarely, a Pokemon in the game will appear differently than normal. For example, the Pokemon Ponyta appears with blue flames instead of red. and every other way, it's the same. It's the same Pokemon with the same strengths and weaknesses, but its rarity is in the color. It's the perfect digital collection item, as it's useful in-game, especially if you don't choose starter. can be easily shared with others through pictures or in team battles, but it doesn't fundamentally change anything. And as we are on our quest, we start collecting more and more. In our early adventures in the game, we usually collect low-level, not super great Pokemon. The Rattatas, the Biduffs, the Pidgeys, things like that. It's not really our intention in the beginning to catch every Pokemon out there. At least not for a lot of people. It's just getting some Pokemon to progress through the usually ridiculously long tutorial at the beginning that for some reason, they never allow you to skip. Why can we not skip these? It is 2022. With Pokemon, the whole slogan is gotta catch them all. And still today, many marketing experts assume that people go into these games with the intention of doing just that. I'm going to go in and catch every Pokemon in the game. That's why they've introduced things like Pokemon Home or provided updates that allow people to transfer their Pokemon from Pokemon Go into the game. They think building collections are a top-down process. But more research is coming out that says, no, no, it's actually bottom-up. And a lot of the time, it isn't intentional. Instead of going into the game knowing that I'm going to catch every Pokemon, I instead start by catching Pokemon I want or need, and then by filling up the Pokedex, I hit what researchers call the tipping point, in which I go, well, I might as well finish it off, I'm already a third of the way done, and I don't want the time I spent already to mean nothing, to be meaningless. This is partially working on something called the Zygon- Zygarnic effect. Zygarnik effect, I think is how you pronounce it. But this effect states that we as humans love completeness so much that we more easily remember things that are incomplete than things that are fulfilled. We remember the parts of the to-do list we haven't completed today better than the tick marks we already made. We think about the incomplete Pokedex, the Pokemon we can't find, and it nags us. We talked about it in our Kickstarter lecture that people want completeness, which Kickstarter sellers sometimes use that to spark FOMO so that you back their projects because you'll never be able to buy the full set again, or it'll be a ridiculous markup. But what games like Pokemon teach us is that completeness isn't necessarily the start for many people. It's only after they experienced it, loved it, become enthralled in it, and hit a tipping point in which they go, well, I'm already 90% of the way done, so I might as well finish it, that people find that they've accidentally stumbled into a collection. Now, once they've stumbled into that collection, there are driving forces that keep them going. One of these is uncertainty that leads to motivation. This can take the appearance of FOMO, the fear of missing out, because we may be unsure if we will ever be able to get that thing again. Maybe it's the only weekend we can collect an item featuring the art of our favorite hero, or to a Kickstarter that says they will never again be printing this game. It builds in us the what-if motivation. What if that thing is the best thing ever? What if I'm missing out on something? Well, I'll just buy it. Just collect it. But it can also take the form of a random reward system, and Pokemon does this expertly. Think about Pokemon Go. There's always a chance that you can walk a little further, go somewhere new, and get a shiny Pokemon. There's always the chance that you can uncover something new, get a new raid boss, finally accomplish those objectives you've been working on for months. You can never know if you'll find one, even on the special event days. But isn't it tempting to try? Doesn't just the thought of the possibility of finding something rare and magnificent motivate you to just play a little bit more? Something that many health studies found with Pokemon Go was that it got people to increase their amounts of physical activity. Of course, this was before COVID, but all in all, it increased the average person's activity levels, and some studies found that it got people into a more active and healthy lifestyle because it created the habit of going for walks and being outside. But why did it do this? Well, people like to collect, but they don't like to walk, generally speaking. We call this temptation bundling, and it's something that is actually taught to people in counseling who are having troubles with willpower in their lives. The idea is that if you pair something you don't want to do with something that gives a delayed reward, it'll give you more motivation to do that thing. For example, let's say you hate studying for your psychology exams, which would make me very, very sad, but I know how it goes. By itself, it sucks. But let's say that every time you get five questions right, you get a point. And every 10 points you get, you get a pizza. That's temptation bundling. It's giving you reward to incentivize you to do something. So Pokemon Go is doing pretty much that with a digital game. It's getting us to go that extra step, literally, to try to acquire rare and valuable Pokemon that we can later share. Because that's also the point of Pokemon and collections, right? Sharing and building a community. Once it beats that raid boss, it's gonna take more than just you alone, most likely. So gather up your friends and head out. Can't seem to figure out mechanics of the game? You head online, there's bound to be someone on there who has already asked and answered it, or is at least ready to help you. Because the thing that we find with these social interactions, the going out and finding Pokemon, and we see it in each and every one of the motivations earlier, is that endorphins are released during something called the thrill of the hunt. No, I'm not talking about trophy hunting like serial killers, you're watching too many Netflix documentaries. I'm talking about the rush that collectors get when they're searching for something. They're using their acquired knowledge, sharpening their skills, and enjoying the process of hunting down that rare and exciting item that is going to better their collections. It's the excitement that builds while imagining and anticipating the satisfaction of finding just the right thing for your collection. They get a rush when they find it, but then it's gone. They completed it. So it's off to find something else, chasing that endorphin rush again. It's why a lot of people have happy memories or attachments to certain Pokemon. I have an affinity for Umbreon because I worked so hard to acquire it and train it and remember having to figure out the whole night and day evolution thing for the first time. I worked for it and now I want one all the time. In fact, scientists have shown that people who played Pokemon a lot when they were younger collected and worked on their Pokedex, they have an unconscious positive affinity for Pokemon as adults. It actually triggers the same recognition part of the brain that cute animals do. Some scientists argue, and I agree with this perspective, that because of the attachments we create with certain Pokemon, whether it's because we worked so hard to find them or whether they carried us to victory, it actually creates a sort of parasocial relationship where we form a connection with a non-living entity that can't hear us or understand us. But maybe this is why so many people look back fondly at Pokemon, and why you can show images to adults who played Pokemon as kids and their brain immediately recognized the Pokemon as something positive. We haven't really talked much about our brains thus far. There's still a lot to research, and a lot of what makes people like to collect actually come down to individual differences. But we can look at other animals to see how collector's brains works. Humans are not the only species that collects, so we often look to other species that do the same behaviors to look at what parts of the brain are activated. And probably the most famous example of another animal that collects is what we call people who collect, pack rats. Pack rats are interesting because they exhibit behavior we would almost think of like trading. They will put something down that they are carrying if they are walking along, and they see something they view as more valuable. Pack rats have a foraging brain. They build what are called middens, which are these kinds of um, nests, and you can find all types of stuff in there from cactus seeds to shiny pebbles to twigs. But what we find in the pack rats' brains that are similar to humans is the circuitry found in the basal ganglia in the middle frontal lobes. These areas are the reward center of the brain. They experience, obtain, and really importantly for our topic today, they anticipate rewards. Pack rats exhibit the same thrill of the hunt that we just talked about. Another animal that is known to be quite clever in general, but also big collectors, are crows. Crows have something called the nidopaleum caudalateral, which I invite you to say repeatedly at dinner parties to make yourself sound smart. Let's try it again: nidopaleum caudalateral. But this is area of the brains of crows and even pigeons that are similar to our prefrontal cortex. They are in charge of goal direction and integrate information from all over the brain. Some of these pathways require a reward because we need to learn that the behavior did what was intended. And we often find that collecting can fire off these signals, creating a learned behavior. So what we actually learn from studying these animals is that collecting inherently is a learned behavior. Something in our brains, like those in crows, learned through being rewarded that collecting valuable objects is associated with positive feelings. And like pack rats, we forage, we hunt, we adapt. We learn to make quick decisions, and as we go, we gradually get better at it. And when we acquire something valuable, we don't give it away easily. Remember back to that FOMO lecture when we talked about basketball games, and the tickets, and how people who had tickets thought those tickets were way more valuable than the ones who didn't? We said it was called the endowment effect and I don't know why I phrased it like that, it still is called that? And you bet it happens in collections. We are really bad at estimating the value of our collections, and that's pretty evolutionary as well. Many studies have attempted to find these in anything from chips to capuchin monkeys, and most of them find that they exhibit the same behavior, One such study was actually kind of funny because they basically found their results by trying to get the monkeys to trade two different kinds of treats they they enjoyed. I love studies like this because part of me always likes imagining a scientist trying to persuade a monkey to give them their cookie, and in return they get a different cookie. Like, hey, I'll give you this Oreo if you give me your Oreo. And I don't know, I just want that job for like one day. Eric, monkey persuader. Anyways, getting back on topic, our brains enjoy the anticipation. They then learn the positive association of finding something, and then it somewhat illogically overvalues those items. And then it wants to do it again and again. It's addictive, and it's fun for a lot of people. But I bet you know where I'm going with this. What happens when it gets to be too much? What happens when people can't stop? That leads us to our final topic of the day, hoarding disorder. Hoarding disorder is actually a relatively new label. It began its own thing in 2013, and beforehand it was part of the OCD family. It is estimated to affect between 2-5% to 5% of the population. And what makes hoarding disorder different from collecting? Hmm. Well, for one, hoarders tend to have other psychiatric disorders. And this shouldn't be too surprising because it is similar to when we talked about acquisition disorder. In one study, major depressive disorder was found in over 50% of hoarders, while general anxiety disorder and or social phobia were found in about 25%. OCD was found in some, but it was less than 20% is probably why I broke up from that family. Well, hold on. Before I get too far, let me tell you the criteria for being diagnosed with horning disorder. Criteria one, a persistent need to save items. Two, clinically significant distress, especially when discarding possessions, regardless of their actual value. And three, and this is the one we're going to focus on, clutter and non-functionality in the living space. If the living space is uncluttered, it is only due to third-party intervention. This is really important. It has to impede on something. It has to negatively affect the other aspects of your life. The study I mentioned earlier, which was done by Ashley Keller and her team at King's College, found an unexpected result, that collectors tend to have larger property sizes than hoarders. But this makes sense because of the third aspect. As Keller explains, Keller says that they are two conflicting interpretations for this. Either hoarders tend to have smaller properties because they are functioning less well. Unlike collectors, they are suffering from prolonged psychiatric conditions, so maybe their careers suffer or they stop working at all. Or, because of the last criteria for being a hoarder is that your living space is impeded, it just takes longer for someone with a big home to reach that stage. But the main difference between the two is in organization and intention. Collectors are more focused in their acquisitions, like confining their accumulations to a narrow range of items. They tend to be more selective, like planning and purchasing only predetermined items. And collectors are also more likely to organize their possessions and less likely to accumulate in a kind of excessive manner, not like piling things up everywhere, wherever they fit. Again, it's about not impeding the other aspects of your life, particularly your living space. Since 2013, this definition has been researched a bit more, like what happens when collecting negatively harms your personal life. Some studies, including one often cited, one done by Russell Belk, has shown that collecting, even luxury consumption by wealthy folk, can severely negatively affect family life. Collections are perceived as non-human rivals for the affection of collectors in the household. And ultimately, who are the people who can afford collections most of the time? Who are the ones going after the Picassos? Who has the luxury, large, who has the luxury car collections? Who has the antique ones? Who can afford to go to auction houses to bid on rare items? As Belk points out, one negative aspect to collections with the motivation of leaving legacy is, well, they overrepresent powerful social classes. The crystals we talked about at the beginning of the class might have just belonged to the wealthy, the ones who could afford to have them brought there from miles away. It might not have been that popular at all. COVID has changed our perception on collections a bit. People were looking for attachments to create when there were little social. COVID has changed our perception on collections a bit. People were looking for attachments to create when there was little social interaction outside. Sales of board games and video games skyrocketed. Pokemon continued to come out with more games successfully in Animal Crossing, a game in which you do mundane errands and collect fish, bugs, dinosaurs, art, and recipes to build household objects became a global craze. We saw something that we've seen in studies of older people, that collections can be an outlet for social interaction, to feel like you're a part of a community, because collecting is something that is often valuable. It enriches both our personal lives and our interpersonal lives. It doesn't matter the motivation behind it, it matters whether you care about it. A collection is a reflection of the person and you should be proud of it as long as it isn't out of hand. Collecting should feel fun, not a chore, and everyone's threshold is different. So go out there and catch Pokemon, trade with your friend, hunt down those shinies. Your ancestors would be proud of how you fine tune those gatherer instincts. That's all for today's class, have a good one. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at The Board Game Dojo. Until next time, sayonara!